Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Alberto Brandolini. Based in Faenza in northern Italy, Alberto is a consultant and popular conference speaker and trainer. As the CEO and founder of the IT consultancy Avance Coperta, Alberto offers a 360-degree approach to his clients, covering areas from software development and high-level architectural decision-making to project management and organizational change. You can follow Alberto on Twitter under his handle, at ZioBrando, and you can learn more about Avance Coperta at avancecoperta.it. Alberto is the inventor of events of the events workshop methodology for improving processes and visualizing large-scale complexity, and he is the author of the related LeanPub book, Introducing Event Storming, an act of, deliberative, of deliberate collective learning. In the book, Alberto sets out in detail what the event storming process is and provides guidance both for people interested in participating in event storming workshops or conducting and event storming workshop themselves. In this interview, we're going to talk about Alberto's background and career, his professional interests, event storming, and his book. And at the end, we'll talk about his experience as an author and using LeanPub to self-publish a book. So thank you, Alberto, for being on the LeanPub Front Matter podcast. Thank you. I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. So I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about where you grew up and how you first became interested in software and IT. Uh, well, uh, I've been traveling a lot, but I, I grew up exactly where I'm living now. So my finance is my hometown, and uh, even if I lived uh, in, uh, in somewhere else and still traveling a lot, I actually got back to my roots. I realized working is uh, – I just need to be a driving distance from a, a airport. That's good for me. And so, yes, so I, I, I enjoy my, my local food and I try in the weekends and, uh, and I travel uh, basically all around Europe during the, during the week. I, I think everything started for me when I was uh, 12. I got uh, Sinclair Data X Spectrum as a Christmas present uh, and uh, I started coding at that time uh, the dream was to uh, build my own video games and that's how my generation started so I'm still coding after more than 35 years now and um, yes but uh, so the, the idea about coding uh, I would like to solve the problem I would like to make somebody happy with some code but then the more I grew up in my professional career the more I realized actually coding by itself was not only the answer I just like uh, I saw I needed to take care about everything else that was happening around the coding uh, maybe it was the, the context maybe it was just like uh, uh, the collaboration which was not working maybe it was the mood of the team maybe it was uh, uh, the food in uh, in one customer, uh, I actually had to tell him, look, you don't need a coach, you don't need a consultant, you just need to open some windows here because there is no oxygen in the afternoon and everybody's having a, head a headache after two o'clock. Uh, and so it was uh, trying to make things work and looking around about the reason why things were not working. And uh, this also led me uh, experiment after experiment uh, to uh, to even storming uh, like uh, a consequence of uh, a lot of little uh, variations uh, the the biggest one was uh, at that time uh, the whole story started sounds like uh, actually six years ago now, uh, five, six years ago. But at, at that time, I was traveling with the, an Ikea paper roll in my backpack. And this is a kind of a weird thing. Like why is uh, – software consultant 
going around with an IKEA paper roll in the backpack. I mean, it was the type of thing you can buy in the the kids area for uh, for people for kids drawing, and uh, the reason why uh, it, it was um, I was sometimes given a meeting room. And the meeting room had a very small or maybe used flip chart. Uh, the, um, there was a whiteboard that was too small. And I said, like, uh, I'm not solving small problems. I, I need, I need a, a larger surface because I need to visualize a solution to large problems. And I don't have enough space. So instead of waiting a couple of weeks to uh, have a good booking on the most important meeting room of the organization, I don't have to wait. This uh, uh, these weeks in order to have the room, I have my meeting room in in my backpack. So that that, that was the attitude, and I'm not following your rules. If I have a problem, I need to solve the problem. If the problem is I need to visualize a complex solution, I'm going to bring my own whiteboard with me. Actually, with one customer, I went further. I asked for whiteboard. They said, like, uh, oh, yes, you're going to have it. And then they told me, oh, you're going to have it in... uh, in three months, when we moved to the big uh, to the next uh, building, and the morning after, I I came with my car and I brought a big whiteboard in uh, in my trunk. So I, I started doing a modeling session in the, in the corridor, and the, the manager came to me. What the hell are you doing here? Well, I was asking for a whiteboard. He said, like in three months. Okay, I just need it now, so I brought mine. He was completely offended because the company was really rich, and. Uh, and it looked like uh, I had to supply with my own money to their short, shortcomings. And the morning after, I basically, we had 20 whiteboards because he was so offended and he didn't want to. And, uh, and I realized, okay, that's one way to make things happen. You just uh, start with, with your own stuff and then uh, and you don't wait for, um, for permission or stuff like that. Yeah, speaking, speaking of doing things your own way, um, I've got a lot of questions to ask you about this event, about, about event storming and how it got, it, it got going. Um, and I've, I've, I've heard a little bit about that story from one or two talks you've given about uh, having the, the roll of paper in your backpack. Um, yeah. I, I wanted to... I wanted to start by asking you um, one of the recurring questions on this podcast because so many people are um, who are lean pub authors are, are are programmers or people who got their start in programming. I wanted to ask you about studying at university. Uh, you have a post from a few years ago now, from 2014, I think, where you wrote, "I remember my days when I was a university student. I hated it." Um, <laughs> And, uh, and, and, and in the post, you, you talk about how basically, you know, it was just this, this rote learning type. It, it, it appeared to me anyway to come across as a kind of rote learning type experience where everybody's just kind of going through a meat grinder and then you get exams at the end of your term and things like that. And one thing I wanted to ask you is, and this is a question I ask, ask many of the guests on the podcast is, if you were starting out now in 2019 in a career in software engineering, would you go to university? Probably yes, but not only. So there's um, well, a little disclaimer. My organization is also offer, offering training classes. So we are in the consulting and education market. Uh, but uh, there's something that we learned. Uh, so uh, we started uh, and I started a lot uh, about uh, uh, yeah, learning, uh, better learning techniques, better learning approaches, better teaching approaches and, uh, and, and teaching techniques. And... Uh, but the university as an institution is flawed. Is, uh, the, there's a fantastic TED talk from uh, um, Kevin Robinson uh, saying that universities is optimized for creating university professors. Uh, students are something like a byproduct. What they think are the best students are actually hijacked to become the next generation professors. Even music schools have suffered the same uh, the dysfunction. And it's not 
really optimized for the, for the learning. And um, and some dysfunction might be like there is not so much feedback loops. Now I'm talking about the university I was in, and uh, uh, nobody asked students how was this lesson. Uh, nobody asked the students how was this course. Like, uh, but you might have. Uh, it, I mean, students are a weird beast because uh, you're asking somebody uh, information about something they don't really master yet, but still they can tell you if the lesson they just took was incredibly boring, that's already something important. And and, uh, and the thing that I really didn't like at the university was uh, there was no feedback loop. Nobody ever asked us if we – it was only one professor over 30 uh, approximately that actually looked back and looked in our eyes and say like, okay, you didn't get it. I try again, my fault. And it's like, okay, that that is teaching, but everything else was just like crap. And um, um, but the thing is, as systems, university cannot really keep up the pace, especially technical universities. Not every university is uh, in need of. Um, uh, improving, keeping up pace uh, at the same speed. Uh, if you're teaching history, history is not changing at the same pace as technology. I mean, it will change. Or if you're teaching, uh, teaching languages, it, it's moving, but the core stays um, stays the same. Um, still, universities as institutions don't have all the feedback loops in place. They don't ask the market what they should teach. They don't, uh, I mean, it, it really sound weird, but uh, there are so many things that they don't ask and they are having internal feedback loops. Having said that, I mean, some of them are better, some of them are really bad, and I'm, there's a little bit about being Italian also here. But uh, learning is too important just to leave it to an external institution. So I would say, like, what is going to happen progressively is just, like, uh, self-learning uh, uh, is going to get more and more important. And that what we are trying to say to our customers, but to our colleagues too, is just like, uh, don't delegate it. Uh, if you are, I, I have kids which are uh, teenagers going to get closer to university and, uh, okay, you got to take a degree, probably going to give you a better placement on the work market, but it's not the whole story. If you just think that I got the university degree and this is going to be enough, you're going to be a loser. You're going to be a commodity on the job market. You got to be special and this speciality comes from your individual learning, comes from, comes from the, the perfect mix of your passions, your curiosity, your opportunities for having experience and the connection you can make between interdiscipline uh, um, yeah, experiences. So just like being a, I am a software developer, with a special ability in uh, drawing comics. And I realized the other thing that made me special when I uh, facilitate workshop is um, I used to be a drummer and uh, with not exactly jazz background, I was a little bit more than a rocker, but it was good in improvising. So when you are on stage and uh, uh, your guitar uh, player is starting with the solo. You have to follow. You don't have to stop. Oh, sorry, I didn't understand this. No, you keep up the pace. The show must go on, and you have no idea what you're doing, but you pretend that you do. And uh, and uh, this is exactly the type of uh, cross-discipline influence that made me good in being a software developer. Thanks so, thanks very much for that answer. That's great. I mean, the the uh, one thing I really liked about what you said was there are two sides to the coin of education. One is you know what you're being provided with, and the other is what what you're doing yourself, the initiative that you're yep. taking. And it's sort of I don't know if it's exactly ironic, but 
it used to be that actually universities were understood to be more like that. Basically, when you attended a university in the olden days, and I'm talking about a couple centuries ago, the idea <laughs> was that you showed up and you what you had was the opportunity to be near a library and near books and attend lectures by, you know, leading thinkers in an area. But, the, you know, the idea was certainly not that, you know, a university was a place where you went to be trained. Uh, more or less for a job. I mean, there 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 would be things like law, the law and and you know the the priesthood and things like that, where there would be things that were like training. But it was more it was more like here's this wonderful resource you've you've paid and you you're, you've got the time to sort of be there. Now what are you going to make of it? Um, was the idea, and it was this this two sided thing. Um, and that that's a very good uh, point about I, I thought about um, how universities are optimized to create the next generation of professors as someone with a with a doctorate myself um i'm definitely sort of a beneficiary (laughs) of of a system like that i was a fish in water uh but 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 not everybody was and it wasn't it was a lot of it about anticipating becoming the prof uh and not necessarily anything else um i wanted to ask you a question now this is going back a ways uh, but on the subject of education um you're the second person i've interviewed in the last couple of weeks uh who participated in the erasmus program okay for foreign exchange in europe and i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your experience with that and i I, one of the reasons i like to talk about things like this is you know in the context of things like brexit and things like that you know the importance of 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 moving around and going different places in in, and learning uh, about the rest of the world oh yes absolutely uh well for for many many reasons i took uh took an erasmus uh a year in uh, in finland uh that was uh uh, 1994, 1995, and well, uh, I met my wife over there. So the, so the um, two daughters happened as a side effect of this experience. Uh, but it was a lot, lot of this. Like uh, as a student, I actually didn't do anything special. As a survivor, uh, as a learner, he provided me a lot of uh, um, a relativistic point of view. I thought things were obvious because I only saw things from the Italian perspective. Then I went in a in a, a cultural environment that was completely different. In uh, in 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 Finland, there was a, a lot less cult of personality in the role of the professor, a lot more availability and and, um, and friendliness and. Uh, uh, informality, but at the same time, there was also talking about uh, how school was, uh, um, education was organized. Uh, uh, let's say in Italy, the, the the university is providing mostly a fixed plan. You have to take the whole sequence of exams in order to get a degree, but th- there is not so much variation between individuals. So as a result, it was a it's probably okay with some professions that need to provide coverage to disciplines, let's say medicine. Uh, you would not give so much uh, freedom. Uh, you cannot choose to ignore um, inf- infections in, in your, in your uh, path. That, that, that's okay. But in, it, in some other places, uh, it just uh, creates uh, commoditized roles. I have finished my degree and I'm exactly just like the other student. And so on the job market, I tend to be really, really weak. I met a person in Finland that was uh, at the same time taking a degree in um, uh, electronic engineering and philosophy. I still don't see the connection between the two, but if there is one person on earth that could find this connection and maybe have a niche market, is this person. And and the the stupid thing in Italy was, uh, this is actually forbidden. I mean, 
how, why do you forbid a person from taking two degrees at the same time? It's a personal choice. No reason to, to block it. I suspect it's a, an IT problem behind it. Like, uh, how do I record this in a database somewhere? Uh, so let, let's, let's block it. And uh, nobody would like to do this. Uh, but I experienced this freedom. I, I saw that, oh, okay, this is possible. You, you, can, you can think about uh, uh, designing your own career. And then, uh, then I felt, felt like, why not? There's not, not, not a good reason for doing this, provided that you're not uh, economically a parasite on the, on, the, yeah, on the public. But if you can do it, if you can use this money as an investment and get two degrees at the same time, good for you, good for everybody. You are the person that could make connections. Um, if you want even more background uh, uh, about it, this, this, so Erasmus was great and also actually made me, made me a lot better in, um, in, in, in speaking English. Like uh, Italians are not very good at this and I was forced to become better because like I'm here, Finnish is very, very tough to learn. And uh, so I had one year and I, I realized I could become maybe close to dumb in Finnish or I could become decent in uh, in English and have a decent conversation with people. Okay, let's go in that, that direction. So we started hanging out with uh, uh, people from yeah, uh, United States, England, uh, France, Germany, and whoever was there. And that, that was fun. And uh, the moment I started dreaming in English, I realized, okay, something opened in my brain and uh, it's working. That's a that's a fantastic story. Thank you for sharing that. Um, it, it turns out you're not only the second person I've interviewed uh, in the last couple of weeks who did the Erasmus program, but who also met their wife uh, in, in that time. Um, uh, and so uh, eventually, and, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll move on to uh, domain-driven design and event storming uh, in just a couple of minutes, but just to understand a little bit more about how you got to be the CEO of a consultancy, uh, did you work oh, well, in, in industry for a few years? Well, I was... Uh... Well, I would not use the word CEO, but uh, I, I worked for a consultancy company for seven years, uh, and uh, and then uh, then I became a freelance. Then I realized, okay, uh, I need to do something bigger than just my name. So I started my own uh, my own little company. The company is still really small. We are just like uh, five employees. Uh, we have around a dozen of uh, external collaborators. The thing which is really good is. Uh, those guys are really, really highly talented. Some of the best talents in our field in Italy. Uh, maybe just uh, as uh, trainers for uh, for some classes, maybe as collaborators. But uh, the thing which is working really well, uh, we spend a lot of time working with really smart people and we make new stuff happen. We don't, uh, we don't follow the books, uh, we are actually writing them. Uh, and it is not exactly a metaphor. We are trying to do new stuff because uh, we we are confident we can we can make it happen. We always have a plan B. We can do stuff like we we did already. Uh, but uh, if you have the best talents around, uh, you feel like oh well, let's try to do some uh, yeah more interesting stuff. Let's try to do something different today. And um, so before we talk about event storming, I thought we should uh, lay a little bit of groundwork. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, domain driven design. And uh, and I know it's a huge topic. I mean, I interviewed Michael Michael Plute recently about it. But uh, if you could just you know give a little bit of an introduction to to what that is, I'll try. So um, the thing about domain driven design is just uh, it's an approach for software development um, where 
learning is really crucial. Well, all of this focus about right, the learning is exactly because in many projects, learning is actually the bottleneck. So one of the things we have to uh, acknowledge is just like not every software project is the same. There are some software projects which is uh, a little bit more than cut and paste. You just have to build something which was more or less like the thing you develop already for another customer, blah, blah, kind of boring if you are smart. You already done this, a little bit of customization, yes. And uh, you don't need soft uh, domain-driven design for this uh, for this area. Domain-driven design becomes really important uh, when you're dealing with uh, uh, software projects uh, where uh, you can't understand upfront everything. You, you just like uh, the dom- or is domain is too complex. Typical examples were finance, finance for software developers. Okay, you can read books, but you can't understand everything in one shot. Or you get in some domains which are evolving so quickly that everything you learn um, a couple of weeks ago is now obsolete because uh, well, domain has changed and the things are changing, and uh, and you're riding a wave and whatever you learned yeah three weeks ago is is, uh, is no longer valid. So you have to change the underlying software. The idea about domain-driven design is just like uh, you don't want to lose these details. You want to make sure that uh, your understanding of the domain and your code are as much in sync as possible. Uh, every every distance between, oh, this is how I understand, and this is just the code which is running, is is risky, just like creating a gap, and, and it might make the um, uh, procedures uh, uh, around the software really, really yeah, kind of uh, bumpy and... Uh, and get to the point to kind of even inject pain in software developers like uh, you have to remember this, you can make mistakes, mistakes can be costly and, and uh, create an unhealthy uh, environment. Uh, the thing that I experience in a in good project with, uh, with applying domain-driven design is just like uh, we solve very complex problem. We had a team of people that was feeling safe because our software was rock solid, it could not break, even if we were managing millions in banks and stuff like this. Software is a machine. It has to run predictably. The moment you have this confidence, then you're a different person. You're just like not crossing your fingers if you're deploying something in production on Friday. Because Friday is just another day. Whenever we deploy something to production, it just runs. Or if it doesn't, we roll it back in the, in, the, in five seconds. And this confidence, this safety, this, uh, oh, well, I can breathe, I'm relaxed, I'm not living, I'm not having nightmares at night, uh, it just creates a safe environment for, uh, well, let's make another experiment. Uh, let's try something new. So you, if you don't feel confident, you don't try, you don't make experiments. And uh, I put all of this emphasis about the learning and the confidence because it's, uh, it's a vicious, uh, virtuous cycle. Just like if you are stressed, you don't, you don't learn because of the chemical in, in, your, in your brain, then you don't make experiments, then uh, y- your code is actually becoming horrible and holding back your organization. While if you play with the code, if it feels like, oh, it's a game, why don't we do this? From the outside, you don't even look like you're learning, and then you're doing something amazing, like, uh, and you're smiling with your friends and make, making it happen. So that's exactly the, the place where uh, I, I like being, at solving very complicated problems with an approach that allows me to do that.
Yeah, thanks for that. There's a lo- there are a lot of really interesting threads to to pull on there. I mean, for example, there, there's a little bit of a tension between um, having a kind of determinate system, you know, one that you can have confidence where it's going to exactly what's going to happen, and experimenting. So, and then you know, you you do an experiment because you don't know what the outcome is going to be, uh, and having a foundation of predictability on which to do experiments is really important. Um, so, yeah, do- domain driven design is is generally so so one one can imagine a sort of nightmare scenario for a software developer where there's a group of executives who are running a business who decide they want something. And then they have a group of people underneath them who are like tasked with bringing that about. And then they assemble teams beneath them who assemble teams beneath them who assemble teams beneath them. And then you end up with some uh, very specific requests like, hey, computer guys, go make this happen. And domain-driven design is meant to say like this, that is that is a very bad idea uh, for for doing things. The people who are doing the at least somebody along the way and the business side of things should have some understanding of the way the technology works and people on the technology side should have some w- way of understanding yep. the business domain and how and you know how that works so for example if if you're working in finance as you said you know the sort of people on the development side should have some understanding of perhaps the regulatory situation and the way that can that can change and the kind of policy how, how how a user is actually someone who's sort of maybe defined by by policy. And so event storming, uh, which you invented, is this very unique idea for trying to getting a group of people together from different sides of the business to understand what they're doing, even if they're already in the midst of doing it. Is that is that a good way of putting it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes and no. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, um, I, I try to de-emphasize de- this because uh, uh, when uh, whenever somebody says like uh, he invented, it makes me feel like I had a plan. No, I didn't. I just, I just, uh, I just was traveling with an IKEA paper roll, and some friends asked me to model a complex process, and I said like, okay, there is no time and space to do a proper UML diagram. Let's just use the paper roll. Uh, let's get the stickies assigned colors to the stickies and uh, okay this is my process but it did it in uh, less than 10 minutes and my colleagues that were facing the same problem didn't even start so i i look around and say like uh, what's your solution what, and they were looking at me what the hell are you doing i just catch my solution and uh, maybe it's not good but it's i have a prototype where's yours and i said like zero 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 okay this round is mine just like playing poker and i realized okay i had something because i was really really quick in having a solution but they thought i had a good solution that was a little bit of a trick i just had one and then i was completely ready to destroy it if if somebody was coming with it with a better uh, with a better um, solution or with a variation but now we had something to discuss and uh, so it started. Uh, I said, like, okay, this interaction is interesting. Let's just use it in some other concepts. And uh, we started making experiments initially in little educational workshop, then in uh, in uh, projects. And, uh, and a few years later, I used the variation on the same technique to design startups, to to do management consulting, and or to design software. It's very very flexible, and I realized that. Uh, now I know a lot more about the mechanics and the reason why it's working, but uh, it didn't go like, okay, given all the books that I've read, right. given this problem, what would be the solution? No, no, it didn't work that way. I did something just because like uh, I was between friends. It was a Saturday between friends and it was a challenge, a little game. Okay. Uh, I would solve it in a different way. So that, that it is it, not exactly a metaphor, but it's uh, 
you do different things in a different context with a little pressure, but not too much. Yeah, and then okay, that was a good idea. It's a really fascinating uh, model uh, when you when you see and you can see you can see pictures of it um, if you if you search for event storming online, or of course if if you get if you get the book. Um, but uh, essentially, this this roll of paper is is, is literal. Um, you you you. And, and the way that you've worked it out now is that you um, you set you go to a room and you have this roll of paper which you you roll out as long as as you can, uh, taping it to a wall at about you know eye level or so. Um, and this represents from left to right a, a time sequence or at least yep. a process sequence. And what people are asked to do is to take these uh, post-it notes or sticky notes in various colors, and the colors represent types of things. Let's say. Yeah, um, but and, we. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, we usually start with only one color, which is okay. orange, for for weird reason. But uh, well, uh, wait, I was just just on that note. So so orange is domain events, and so I was wondering yeah. if you could talk, say what a domain event is and why orange. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so uh, I don't even call them domain events. It was okay. really a term from domain driven design. I just try to call them events, so it makes things easier. So it's the the building blocks for a storytelling is something that happens in uh, in a field in a domain in a given moment in time. So the the thing here is just like uh, when I pack the room with different people invited, everybody knows a portion of the story very well, and they probably know the whole story, but not that well. And so it's just like uh, started to build a story in a, an ordered way, chaotic at the very beginning. It's just like, okay, this is what I know, and I, I don't care about the surroundings. The second step is just like, okay, let's try to sort it out to try to make the story which is consistent from the beginning to the end. And this is where people start talking because, uh, oh, I thought you were doing that way. No, we do this before this step. Okay, it, this has to happen. We don't do this if we don't receive an order, but sometimes we do this even if we don't have an order, provided that the customer is trusted and blah, blah, blah. So this story becomes uh, uh, more complicated, richer in precision. And uh, and what we are using is just like is the innate ability of humans to do storytelling. S- the stories have, have to be consistent. We gather around the fire uh, centuries uh, uh, ago around stories. So we know when the stories is bullshit. And everybody's correcting somebody else. No, you're missing this event. This is not always happening this way. And there's also this scenario. So this collective effort to make this storyboard solid creates a collective understanding, which is a lot deeper than collecting requirements and so on. And getting back to domain-driven design, the illusion that I discovered. uh, So it started like... uh, we are software developers trying to understand the domain, and this is a, an accelerator for our process of learning. Now I, I'm calling bullshit a little bit more. Like every person in software starts with the illusion that I'm talking with the business people. The business people know their business. That is bullshit. The business people don't really know the business. They won't ever admit this, but their knowledge of business is not as sophisticated as software people need in order to turn their requirement into software. Software needs precision, and uh, 
people are really expert about everything that happens in their own department and silo. This this knowledge is usually really, really good, but a single person doesn't know the whole story with the, the same degree of precision that we need. But they won't admit it, but in order to turn this complexity into software, we got to make sure that this complexity is stable. It's not ambiguity, bullshit of, or friction and, and misunderstandings in the border between one silo and the other one. And so what happens is just like, uh, we see the business actually clarifying the business to themselves under the eyes of software developers. Okay, now this is a story I can understand. And uh, the story is compiling, is clicking. I don't see uh, endless branches or uh, now now this is making sense to me. Okay, I, I, can, I can turn this into code or uh, I can write the portion of the code which is solving your most important problem. It's really interesting um, that how much uh, when you went in, in your writing and in your in your talks, uh, how the, the dealing with people is is one of the most important things. And you talk, uh, you emphasize the importance of inviting the right people um, to to an event storming workshop. Uh, and so, uh, how do you how do you, I mean? And you you actually you also write about the distinction between sort of a startup where it's not necessarily that difficult to get everybody in yep. the room. Uh, and they're all excited, and they, they they can't wait to have a comprehensive understanding of everything that's going on. And then the big company, where getting the right people into the room—I mean, knowing who to invite might be hard, getting them to come might be hard. In a and and you actually have a concept of a dungeon master in a big company as well, <laughs> which I wanted to ask you about in a moment. But when so when you're brought into a big company, how do you get the right people to come to a meeting? Um, well, it's partially an unresolved issue. Like, uh, it really depends on how big is the company and uh, how willing are they to actually solve uh, solve the problem. So it might be, um, as a consultant, uh, a matter of uh, how how uh, big in the hierarchy is your uh, uh, the person that called you in, basically. Right. Uh, uh, because if this is coming from... Uh, uh, yeah, too deep low in the hierarchy and you're begging for attention, the, the magic is not going to happen. You can do it iteratively, try to do, okay, that's a good result in a local space and then uh, let let the word spread out. Somebody might call you later for a higher level um, uh, meeting, a uh, workshop, uh, and that that actually happens sometimes. But as a consultant, I, I can I can tell you, I mean, if it's very hard to invite the right people beforehand, uh, okay, let's not even try. Let's do something educational. Take your time to get a political momentum inside the organization, and eventually we're going to run the very important workshop later on, if possible, or, or maybe never. Uh, but um, um, it Usually, it, it is already happening. There was also another thing that uh, it might be funny, maybe not, maybe presumptuous, but uh, there was a person telling me that, um, okay, I know your tactics, Alberto. Now, now you're giving talks in conferences so that you can get more customers. And I thought about it and said, like, uh, no, that's a, actually the opposite. I'm giving talks in conferences not to get the wrong customers. I'm, I'm, I'm actually kind of aggressive when I'm on stage to make sure the wrong customer is never inviting me. So I have only a selection of customers that want to do exactly what I uh, promise, deliver, and I like to do. I mean, the wrong customer is never calling me. 
Uh, this is the, the perfect place to be in the market. I I, I have only yeah uh, a few weeks per year where I can work. I don't want to go in wrong places, and uh, and, and this is really, really helping me a lot. So I don't know. Many other places are wrong. They won't ever do anything storming. They may need it, but it's not my problem. I'm finite resource. So. And um, uh, what what is a uh, what is a dungeon master in a big in a big company? Oh, it might even be in a small one, but uh, the, the the dungeon master is uh, is actually a byproduct of uh, some uh, dysfunctional software development environment. Um, I I named it after after a talk from my friend Cyril Martred. We uh, and uh, is usually the the author of the previous version of the software, or it might be the person that, that is still around as an architect, maybe became CTO. So it, it just becomes, uh, it's usually a very nice person. It's not, it's not a, it feels like it's an evil one, but the, the, the evil behavior is not conscious. But it, it's just like, uh, you can picture this person like, like uh, personality is, is torn in two. Like uh, he would like to write a new version of the software, which is going to be better. But not that better because uh, unconsciously, uh, unconsciously, he might feel like if the new software is solving the problem of my old software, then I am stupid. It might be. And, uh, and the other thing, it happens, well, a typical pattern, just like uh, author of the previous version of the software, the software is not exactly finished. Of course it's not. No software is perfectly finished. But he's still around and is doing a lot of uh, manual intervention. And some, sometimes over the night, sometimes when nobody else is watching, it's not because it's a secret. It's just because uh, that's the only time I am not interrupted. But at the same time, this mastery of this little environment, which might be kind of fragile, makes this person the only person actually allowed to touch sensible portion of the system. It becomes dysfunctional once you get um, apprentice. I call them minions uh, just uh, in this case because uh, you can never beat your master because the master always knows something that you don't because uh, the holes in the existing software would never ever be documented because if you document the holes, well, probably it would have been better for you to close the holes instead of documenting them. And, and this is the spiral, like uh, if you want to change stuff, but you always fail because you can never be as good as your dungeon master because the master knows the secrets, so then I feel like uh, probably quitting the company or lowering down the bar and say like, okay, I'm going to be minion. It's fine. You touch this area. I'm never going to change the software again. And uh, year after year, this becomes completely dysfunctional. But uh, – it's weird in projects uh, to to deal with a person like this because you can smell this uh, continuous contradiction. Yes, I'm here to help, but not really. And it's not uh, it's not an evil person. It's a person which is trying to help, but not really. That's a really great that's a really great image. Thank you, thank you for that. that I mean, it, it just it it's it's very striking and sort of like even if you've never seen it before probably recognizable as soon as it's described that way um you've got another another concept that uh was i found quite striking which was um i, I don't know if i'm getting too specific for you but uh hypocrite modeling uh oh, and, wow. and you you define i've i've got i've got a little quote here which you define as um unnaturally pushing complexity outside the software does that does that ring a bell or is that maybe too sort of like uh, deep, I deep, think deep in I the weeds 
I think I don't remember the, this one. I remember writing about it, but I don't remember the, the reasoning and the context behind it. So, uh, yeah, it, it, well, it struck me as, as I mean, the reason it struck me is that you know I've 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 seen I've seen it a little bit just myself. I'm not I'm not a developer, but I've I've you know been involved with a developing couple of projects and and often just the this sort of the reason the reason it's such an important issue to me is that you know as Mark Andreessen said, and I bring up on this podcast all the time and this was years ago now that he said it but software is eating the world and every everything that we do the, the world is being built on software now and so the way software is built is the way the world is being built and if there's when there are things that are specific to the way software is built leak out into the world uh that's a problem that we're facing now in ways that we might not have faced in the past um, and and the idea that sort of so, the, the the reason I like the concept of hypocrite modeling was you know the the idea that people can be letting the methodologies that they're using to build their software determine how the products are in the end can well, actually be a serious problem. I didn't put that very well, but mm, well, actually that was not bad, and uh, it actually made made me think about uh, well the. the my focus in the last uh, years now, now it has uh, a little bit uh, more specific name is um, uh, I learned the term uh, a couple of years ago too, uh, which is socio-technical. So we are using tools. Tools are forcing collaboration in a given way and uh, and are shaping the way we are interacting with our colleagues. And uh, this might be true uh, for, a, for a group of uh, people collaborating over Slack and, uh, uh, or, or Trello or, or things like this. But it, it is also true for a team of software developers, which is uh, more or less forced to uh, build software on top of an existing architecture. And this is exactly where the, the, the Dungeon Master uh, becomes a, part, a behavioral pattern in this, uh, in this area. So let, let um, just, just to point out the possible difference. If your software architecture is decoupled, you can have two teams uh, that could go on more or less independently. They will have a little bit of interaction. We publish this. It is now available on this area and so on. But if the same teams are, are sharing something which is uh, a little bit more fragile as a form of interaction like, uh, like a database, uh, they will their architecture will force them to have a lot of meetings uh, to make sure that my change is not breaking your stuff. And these meetings are poisonous, are boring, and are dangerous because people hate these meetings so much that they will try to postpone the development because of this. So the, the, the architecture is forcing too tight collaboration and a lot of communication, which is, I would say, more than 50% is blame. You broke my build. You introduced a bug in my software. You should be more careful. You should not touch this area. While if you had the proper architecture, this stuff is never going to happen. Uh, as a metaphor, it is uh, is really dumping it down. I would say, like, uh, uh, you can save uh, your... Um, relationship with uh, with your uh, spouse uh, by have, having separate bathroom and just like there is no discussion on the protocol where to put the, the table down or up because you have two separate things and this conversation is never going to happen and then uh, you you only talk about love or more important things and not about the toilet and uh, so um, sorry for the gross metaphor, no, that's, that's but, but it just uh, provides the idea. Just yeah. like giving you the topic to talk about, and this topic is well, let's talk about something else. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, 
event it, it, it's really interesting so uh you didn't you didn't invent it but uh, uh in in a in a sort of moment of inspiration under pressure you came up with this this process uh that eventually became named event storming and it it began to spread and i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what that experience has been been like Actually, don't recall exactly the um, the timing. I guess one of the pivotal uh, moments uh, was um, I was already uh, well connected in the domain driven design community, and I was uh, providing this uh, uh, this little workshop in uh, in a conference in Italy, and um, and and yes, I put the blog post on, and uh, and um, and that was uh, already yeah spreading some interest, uh, but. Uh, uh, probably the pivotal moment for the diffusion was uh, uh, being a kind of a special guest uh, for a uh, von Vernon IDDD tour. I think I think it was uh, yeah 2013 or 14. I don't exactly remember the date, but uh, but I was a special guest in the uh, um, the Belgian and the Polish uh, edition, and um, it was a large workshop, like uh, something like 70 attendees in, in Belgium, more or less the same number in Poland, and. Uh, Usually, when you have these numbers, uh, the average is not really good, but that was a kind of an exception because uh, uh, the average attendees were really, really smart. And uh, we run this uh, this workshop as one of the closing activity in the, uh, in the fourth base, and I have 70 people running multiple event stormings in parallel, and they loved it, and they started to practice and experiment and the little community was born so it was a uh, um, a lot of people from uh, Belgium uh, uh, the Netherlands uh, even France and Germany that came to that workshop and suddenly I, I had the little team of experimenters that uh, understood something they didn't understand the whole story and this was creating all the variation I needed because I was doing a lot of stuff with more or less my recipe and they were practicing in ways that I could not even imagine because for me they were wrong, but they were okay. Uh, we started the conversation. We, it was a, like a Darwinian explosion of variation and see which were the variations that were surviving. That that was uh, that was the little uh, the little boom and uh, uh, yeah, uh, the Belgian community, the Polish community, and. Uh, um, and the connection, I, I realized. Okay, now I have friends practicing with this, asking for uh, for feedback, giving me feedbacks, and all, all this stuff. This this was uh, was something like uh, like magic. People like my stuff and uh, use that and told me it was useful. And then it was uh, a little bit of a drug for me. Like I got addicted to this. Oh well, well you're using my stuff, so I will tell you also this and this and this variation. Try this, try with that, and uh, um, yeah, it's uh, kind of a, kind of a good feeling. If there is one moment, it, it is uh, it is that. And uh, and eventually you decided to write a book, and that's been quite a journey as well. And I wanted to uh, move on to the next part of the interview and talk to you about that. Um, how did you uh, get started writing? Um, I felt like I had to. Uh, just like uh, I started, uh, I started with a with a blog post, and the blog post was telling just uh, just a little bit of, of the story. Actually, if you look at the blog post now, is uh, uh, badly outdated because uh, the, the the sequence, the process uh, that I described at that time is not the one that I'm using uh, anymore. I, I actually don't recall exactly like uh, what was the thing that was uh, forcing me to to write. I felt the call. I felt like uh, you should okay. Let's do this. Well, now let's be honest. You had uh, uh, Limpa had a great uh, role in this because uh, um, 
it just uh, allowed me to try to write a book. So the, the, the story for me was uh, I already tried to write something and uh, every attempt on some other topics uh, basically collapsed around page 40, 50 uh, under its weight. And uh, and Limpub was providing me like uh, the opportunity for uh, trying and see what um, what happened in, uh, in writing. And uh, now I have connection with uh, uh, some, um, yeah, paper publisher, more traditional ones, uh, but uh, uh, I'm actually happy that I was uh, dealing it in, in this way because uh, maybe that book would never came out. Like I'm, I'm very bad in managing the, the pressure and the, I know what happens with, with publishers. Uh, their deadline is not exactly your deadline. They, I mean, there's a way to drive you uh, but there's a little bit of this pressure, and uh, I might do great thing under pressure. Sometimes I, I had fantastic ideas, or I might just completely freak out and uh, and say goodbye to everybody because no, 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 this is insane. I don't want to do this. And so, uh, Limpub allowed me to uh, to run the experiment, and uh, and it was weird at the beginning. Like um, I already had something like uh, 50, 60 pages manuscript that was writing on uh, um, pages on the, uh, on my MacBook, and um, I'm not exactly a programmer, so I'm still coding, my, but I'm also a lot of a visual person. And one of the advice that I find most disturbing at the beginning was, uh, "Oh, I just start with some text, and then you you fix the pictures later." And I found this. Uh, close to offensive, like uh, I am a visual person. I need to make sure that uh, I, I find pleasure, a little reward in seeing a page which is looking exactly the way uh, the way I want. I was uh, um, spending a little time with fonts at the beginning, uh, uh, even on, on pages, uh, look, crafting uh, the template and, and the story be because I was looking, I realized later that uh, the thing that was uh, making me uh, go on page after page uh, was the little sense of beauty of a completed page. Just a little bit of equilibrium. Sometimes I found myself uh, rewriting a, par a paragraph just to make it fit in two lines so that the picture was getting in the same place. So this this is annoying. This is probably wrong on, on so many um, point of views, but, but it was me. And, uh, and since it was my pleasure that was... Uh, uh, given me the energy to keep uh, to keep writing, I said like I I had to not to pretend to be a monk. No, I need this little micro reward, and the page needs to be beautiful. And uh, and also I spent a couple of weeks trying every possible Markdown editor. I actually hated Markdown at that time. And uh, now I'm okay. Now I, I find my combination. Actually, I'm using two. I'm using uh, Sublime or I'm using VS um, um, yes, Code. Uh, and I'm happy with both, but at the beginning, oh yes, I discarded a lot, lot of stuff uh, because um, yeah, Markdown was a standard, uh, but uh, not exactly a standard. There was a, there were little things that were make, uh, may, making a lot of difference. And uh, it's interesting. Sorry, just to just to interrupt there, but you, you've you've touched on something that's um, sort of very very deep lean pub, but for sort of very deep publishing as well, which is um, in the past. I mean, like pre-1980s, um, when people wrote, there was never an expectation that what you were writing is how it would look in the end. For example, if you're, if you're handwriting on a page, you expect to give it to a publisher and then they'll set the type in the old days, things like that. 
but then desktop publishing became a thing and i've i've had the privilege of interviewing some of the people you know people who did earliest book publishing uh, on desktop publishing and i mean you know this will expose me of being of a certain generation but you know when the mac when the mac came out and you could you know have a visual representation of a page and be typing on it and see you know the words as they some approximation as they would on a screen as they would appear on a page that was a magical thing um, yep. and and then you could you know you would have a machine called a printer i don't have one really anymore but you would you, you would hit print and then it would look like what you what you did uh, yep. on your screen and this was an amazing thing uh, and one of our one of the challenges that we've had at leanpub is um, dealing with that impulse to want to see how it's going to look as you're writing it. And we, we, we've got a, a sort of, I think it was my colleague, uh, Peter, who, who founded LeanPub, who came up with it, but that, you know, formatting is a form of procrastination. And um, we don't say that flippantly. It's like, it's because we want to do it too ourselves all the time. Uh, yep. uh, and it's this constant, as, a, as when you're writing, it can be this really constant internal struggle because as you yep. say, you know, it, you know, it's just part of you to want it to look perfect. But at the yep. same time, you know that this desire for that type of perfection isn't necessarily going to translate into anything that other people might care about in yep. the end, even. Uh, but it, but it's but nonetheless, that impulse is there. for some of us that impulse is just there. Yep, um, yeah, because many many of the authors that were suggesting this were uh, uh, talking mostly about coding books. Okay, that that, that is great. I mean, uh, this support for coding is uh, is fantastic. It's just like uh, format the code just as it is, and you're actually giving extra value. Support for pictures. Uh, uh, well, it feels like okay. Then again, I see it with pictures, and I was. Uh, Yes, I can believe you that uh, it will include pictures, but I would like to see with pictures now. Uh, the other, there are, the other reason for me is just like uh, I'm I'm drawing my own pictures. So uh, my my setup uh, when I'm in my uh, writing days is uh, I am uh, um, typing with my uh, MacBook Pro and I'm drawing with my. Um, iPad, and then uh, yes, there's a little bit of uh, image editing to make it uh, fit in 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 uh, in in the space in the page uh, formatting, uh, uh, take, uh, making sure that you're not uh, having backgrounds, so all, all this type of stuff. I tried a few experiments about how to make images, and then uh, I finally stabilized on the on the um, the iPad. But it's still me doing doing two things, uh, and I would like to see the result. Like. Uh, it, it, it's a little price. It's just it's not like a blog. A blog just could end in a in a day of work. A book will is is taking me ages to finish, and so I need some prize. Uh, I need some rewards along the way. And this reward is okay. Now this chapter is looking perfect. This page is looking perfect. I I need this. It's uh, the emotional uh, part of uh, it's just like tasting uh, the dishes you are preparing along the way. Okay, intermediate. This is smelling. This is tasting exactly as it should. And uh, while if you're cooking, it's in the oven. You're not even smelling it. You're assuming like you've been doing everything perfect. It's gonna be cooked in two hours. Uh, no, it's something is missing. I need I need to taste. I need I need this uh, this little thing in uh, in between. Um, one of the things that uh, that I was doing also to have this feedback was uh, okay double screen. I have a, a separate screen for book writing, which is uh, uh, in vertical layout. 
so I see pages vertically and I can scroll down. So, okay, this is where I'm typing in Sublime and this is where I see the preview of, uh, of, uh, of the stuff. Okay, that, that creates a, a lot better feedback loop when, uh, when writing for a book. And uh, so I have these two surfaces for writing, three screens, one, one for the iPad, one for the, uh, for the IDE, and one for, the, for seeing the preview. Okay, this is my setup when, uh, in a good uh, writing day. Yeah, thanks very much for describing that. It's always great to hear the details of how people approach different things, and particularly in your case where, where um, uh, images are so important. Uh, it's interesting to and, – and that you're drawing yourself. It's interesting to hear about the role that the iPad plays. Um, and so you decided to publish your book uh, before it was finished. Um, yep. And I believe – I was actually – I was sort of snooping. Uh, I believe you published the first – version in June of 2018, and you haven't published a new version since then. No, actually... Is that wrong? I should have been published something... Well, I mean, maybe the last official might be that one. Um, I actually haven't had the, the count of how much I progressed in the private version because I committed something yeah, uh, a couple of weeks ago. And... Uh, well, maybe it's time I should release something more because I have. Uh, now, to be honest, I work a lot on another Limpa book uh, around Christmas time. So I finished the chapter for the Eric Evans uh, uh, celebration book after 15 years of the domain driven design. And uh, of course, like every time I say, oh, don't worry, it's going to be, it sounds like six pages. It turned out to be 25. And uh, it, it basically. Uh, phagocitated my whole Christmas holidays and uh, and everything in between, uh, but looks like it was a uh, was a good one. I got good feedback. I added a lot of pictures. I clarified that I'm, I need to include adapt and include this uh, this writing inside the uh, inside my book because it's actually a chapter about uh, even storming a domain driven design and bounded context, which is fitting perfectly. On the subject of feedback, actually, um, I noticed that you at one time set up a public Trello board. Uh, to manage, and, uh, did that experiment work out? Uh, not, not, not really. Uh, not, not, not a special. Uh, uh, looks like it was a, an act of goodwill, and uh, then the, the vicious feedback loop I was trapped in, and just like. Uh, the book was working. The community is growing. The community is, is, is still growing. So as a, as a business, I, I don't know what might happen in an alternative future when the book is already finished and I completed it and just like getting re the revenues. Um, uh, but it's, uh, it's actually selling uh, selling well. At the same time, people are buying the book and they 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 want to be my uh, my customers for facilitation for uh, yeah services and training and everything else uh, around it. And um, and it's not a strategy. It's not like uh, the book is not finished. So you call me to understand how this is going to end. It's not like that. Uh, but it's just like. Uh, there's already enough value to trigger the curiosity, and uh, instead of waiting for the books to be finished, uh, people are contacting me, and I'm, I'm, I've been traveling all around the world in this uh, this uh, last three years, uh, actually doing uh, really interesting stuff and being in unexpected places, and uh, oh well, that's exactly what I wanted to be. Uh, and this is sucking me a lot of time from uh, from book writing. Not exactly for the writing. The writing is still something that could happen on a plane. That's exactly what happens when I'm traveling. But the drawing doesn't. I mean, my setup with two screens and the iPad, 
is not really fitting a plane. You can type on a plane, but you cannot draw. I mean, the plane is shaking. I mean, it's very stupid and frustrating to try to draw rectangles on an iPad while your train, your surface is shaking. And um, and so this magic is only happening in specific days with not so many interruptions and, uh, and uh, in protected zones. And um, now we are doing this protection a little bit better, but it's uh, still very, very hard to, to say this is a no-calls day, this is a, a no-interruption day. Sometimes we have this privilege, sometimes it's, uh, yeah, apparently we have it, and then, oh, phone call or, um, yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's such a great story. Thanks for sharing all that with us. I mean, to see, I mean, for, for us, it's always exciting when we see new books come, come up and especially bestsellers like yours. But when it's, when it's connected to something that someone has, has created and then it, it drives new business to, to what they're doing and, and spreads an idea, uh, it's, always, it's always very exciting to see. So the last question I always like to ask on these podcasts is if there was one thing at LeanPub that we could build for you or one problem we could fix for you, is there anything hmm. you can think of in your in your dream world that you would ask us to do? Hmm. So, uh, can I have two desires? Oh, well, sure. One is small, one one is bigger. Uh, so, the small one is uh, um, that there's something in the feedback loop for images that makes it uh, yeah one one extra step. So, if I could see the the preview and, and uh, make it feel like, uh, yeah, what you see is what you get uh, uh, in, a, in a shorter loop, that, that would be great. And uh, I, I actually haven't tried, maybe there's something that has been fixed, like uh, the, if you set up the local preview, the local path and the remote path might be different for the, for the images. So th- there was something tricky in this, uh, this area. But I would say image handling, that, that, that is the thing. It's not bad. I'm getting used to this. But uh, yeah, immediate preview and, and and see what what I'm drawing immediately. That would make me or oh, incredibly more productive. I would probably finish my book. <laughs> Liar. <laughs> <laughs> um, the bigger thing is. Uh, I realized if I ever move to uh, print the paper with my um, with my book, uh, I would probably not fit the. Uh, portrait format, I would probably need uh, a landscape with foldable pages. That's a really big dream. Uh, but uh, I am in a domain where uh, the most relevant information is in pictures. And these pictures are, yeah, pictures of something that might be 10 meters long. So if I put it inside the printable page, it's not readable anymore. So centerfold opening, okay, now I can see this. Uh, Yes, is in a size that could be readable, so you can see the forest and the trees at the same time. It's not exactly what Limpub was born for. I know it's uh, it's a lot of extra stuff, but you asked me about dreams, and uh, yes. Yeah, thanks. Thanks very much for that. Uh, with respect to the the first um, dream, being able to see an immediate preview is something that we've been asked for in the past. It's something that in in there I can I can see one or two of our writing modes where that's actually something that that you know might might be achievable in the near term. We revisit these things when we did. So I, I don't make any promises on the podcast, but um, but we but it, this is something that we've we've thought about in the past, and uh, it and it is something that we're sensitive to people you know wanting. 
uh, because, you know, you know, sort of, you know, writing in Markdown and then hitting a button to generate a book and then the mystery is revealed later is, uh, is one way of doing it. But another way of doing it would be, you know, <laughs> seeing, seeing immediate, immediately, you know, what would this look like if I'm, if, you know, if you're working in our in-browser editor, say, you could be yep. working in a panel on the left and, and uh, writing in a panel on the left and see the preview on the right immediately with, with images would be fantastic. And with respect to landscape mode, that's very interesting. We've actually been revisiting recently the way we deal with our print-ready PDF output in response to authors uh, talking to us about it. Because basically, when you write a book in LeanPub, we actually have a, a way of, uh, you can just go somewhere and click a button to export a print-ready PDF, which can then be yep. uploaded to like Amazon or, or Lulu or, or other print-on-demand services that usually want PDFs. And how we determine book sizes and margins and things like that is something that we're, we're updating. And I think you are the first person to request a landscape <laughs> mode. Uh, so make sure to communicate that to uh, my colleagues who are, who are like just sort of as we speak coming up with new specifications for how we ought to, ought to deal with that. So um, maybe fingers crossed, uh, this might be something that we'll be able to, we'll be able to offer. Uh, well, Thank you very much, Alberto, for taking the time uh, to do Thank this. you. Um, I enjoyed it. I, I looked up where uh, Faenza is, uh, and it, <laughs> in, in my imagination, it is right in between Venice and Florence. Uh, yes, and, uh, more, more or less, and I, but uh, with specific things uh, like yeah. uh, have good wines, we have uh, a lot of pork meat, and we have cars and motorbikes. <laughs> I was just Don't mix say, the things. I was just about to say I'm jealous, and now I'm even more jealous. Uh, well, uh, so thank you very much uh, for uh, taking the time to uh, do the podcast and for being a Lean Pub author. Thank you for all the support. I mean, a lot of the stuff that I do was not possible without you. So, yeah, big thank you on my side. Thanks. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter Podcast. If you like what you heard, please like and review the podcast in iTunes or wherever you found this podcast. And if you'd like to be a Lean Pub author, please visit our website at leanpub.com.